thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. What's your takeaway image of decadence? Those two bad boys of French poetry, Arthur Rimbaud and Paul Verlaine, high on absinthe, and down in the gutter fighting, or some Roman emperor kicking back in a chaise long, picking at grapes. That's an image that stood the test of time. Here's the historian of the ancient world, Mark Bradley, on the Naked Scientist show, digging up the year in archaeology. One discourse sees fleshiness as a sign of affluence, of the good life, of access to lots of food and resources. And this plays out in examples of Hellenistic rulers, for example, or certain Roman emperors who wanted to imitate Hellenistic rulers, who wanted to show how how many banquets they had and how rich they were and how affluent they were. But at the same time, there's a, a discourse which sees paunchy stomachs and jowly cheeks as part of a, a kind of comedic culture where... These people have eaten too much and they've let themselves go. And obesity, fatness, big bellies are linked to decadence and softness and sometimes effeminacy. Lean and mean was more Rambo style, but decadent he was for sure. Decadence is our subject this week. And please don't misunderstand me if I say we have two guests well suited to discuss it. They are Graham Henderson, founder of the highly successful Poet in the City project and now director of the Rambo and Verlaine Foundation in London. And Dr. Michael Minden, emeritus fellow and for a while president of Jesus College Cambridge and a specialist in modern German literature. Welcome both. Graham, should we distinguish between the idea of decadence in general and the decadence movement of the late 19th century in Europe? Yes, I think our starting point should probably be a clear distinction between the popular idea of decadence as being, you know, too much chocolate cake and um, what I would characterise as the philosophical and aesthetic viewpoint of decadence with a capital D, which really is attempting to say something fundamental and truthful about humanity, culture and spirituality, literally meaning a decadence, a falling away, a sort of process of entropy and decay, sort of loss of moral confidence. So a capital D, Michael. So could the movement be categorised as a reaction against the Enlightenment with a capital E? No, I don't think so. Um, I think that uh, I'm interested in the notion of decadence as a philosophical moment. And I suppose the philosopher I know best in that connection is Nietzsche. And for Nietzsche, this 
uh, ambivalence of decadence comes out terribly clearly because uh, this notion of being fat can be a, both a good thing or a bad thing. It, it seems that, that decadence is, is really a, a socially generated attitude, which can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on the relationship between the status of pleasure and the social formation and its dominant attitudes, if I may put it rather pompously. So, so for Nietzsche, interestingly, I, I'm not sure what Graham would say about Maupassant, but for Nietzsche, Maupassant is non-decadent, uh, or, or non-décadent, because Nietzsche's talking about, he, he didn't know anything about avant-garde art, or hadn't happened yet, whereas Tolstoy is decadent. So there's this ambivalence of what decadence can mean. So for me, to distinguish so sharply between the movement, about which I don't know nearly as much as Graham does, and the notion of falling away from systems, from in-place social and moral attitudes, and then you have to distinguish between them absolutely. I would completely agree with that, Michael. I, I think, you know, it's a complicated and interstitial kind of thing, this decadent movement I'm talking about. And um, very quickly, you find there are dynamic reversals, whereas where, where, you know, decadence, far from being something that is being criticized by the mainstream, is actually a form of criticism of the mainstream and a way of revealing the hypocrisy of what you might call a normative mainstream view um, by pushing its boundaries. For me, it, decadence it is less philosophical. That's why I'm not sure about the Enlightenment. It's, it's more a kind of a social... Thomas Mann talks about a social a, a mildew, something going rotten uh, on uh, an otherwise healthy, or what was once a healthy polity. Uh, and so to say it's a political position, um, it seems a more spontaneous kind of shadow. And insofar as it's critique, uh, it is critique, as it were, by negation rather than any other way. But maybe that's maybe I've misunderstood exactly what, you know, fin de siècle was all about. I think you're right. I think it was a reaction to uh, rapid scientific and technological change uh, and social change. It was an important reaction to science, um, particularly because of the new science in which our view of the world had changed completely from the 1850s on. The idea of geological time, the idea of evolution and natural selection. And also importantly, I think the ideas of the laws of thermodynamics and the inevitability of entropy. On the Enlightenment, I agree, it's not a simple opposition to the Enlightenment by any means, but if by that you mean that it's, uh, it's challenging our faith in the rational ordering of society and in the sort of inevitability of progress and continual political change for the better, uh, you know, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, it's, it's highly sceptical about that uh, sort of naive views of progress. So if it challenges some of the ideas of progress, why is it causing such a lot of controversy? Is it the association with the degenerate arts? Think about the Nazis, um, the title of the exhibition they put on in 1937. What's given it bad press? Can I say, first of all, that uh, the uh, exhibition in Munich opened in 1937. First thing to say is I'm not sure about Fantasiecle of France, but certainly the Weimar Republic was, it has been argued, the first government state to support avant-garde art. And it was this that the Nazis objected to. And that's why they put on the Art of the Kunst exhibition in 1937. 
in which they displayed the canon of modernism. Kokoschka, Kandinsky, Klee, Marx, Chagall, all these people were put up there. And two million plus people went to see it and, as it were, were encouraged to laugh at it and were told, this is what the government used to spend money on. Does that remind you of anything? It's woke. They said this stuff is woke. What they're doing is they're attacking the attitudes and values of the large majority of an educated class for populist reasons. That's what it's all about. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. I mean, I also think it gets us to a very important point that decadence, for me, is characterised as an explosion of creativity and artistic self-expression. I mean, representing really one of the most important self-questioning strands in 19th century thought was a a self-consciously cosmopolitan movement that absorbed influences from all over the world. Um, It provided platform for many new artists and techniques, including a significant number of LGBTQ artists, including Rambo, Verlaine, Oscar Wilde, a lot of women, Judith Gauthier, René Rivienne, Amy Levy, Nadia Boulanger, Irene Poldowski. It was an exciting opportunity for people to uh, you know, explore their identities uh, in, a, in a new way. And so, yes, of course, of course, the Nazis hated it. Uh, it represented everything about uh, cosmopolitanism, internationalism, uh, tolerance and inclusivity that they wished to drive out of the body politic. And, and I mean, it'd be nice to think this was all of merely historic interest. But as Michael points out, it's by no means the case. Um, we've got a government now that attacks rootless cosmopolitans and citizens of nowhere and uh, seems to think that art should be celebratory and reassuring. So uh, many of these issues are as live as they could possibly be. The issues may be live, but aren't you making a, um, a trite comparison between the Nazis and this government? I think if you start using that kind of language, you're beginning to go down a route uh, that is very dangerous. And, you know, where does that route end? I mean, uh, it's worth noting that Hitler didn't use the word Jews in his speech until quite late on. He talked about rootless cosmopolitans. It was what would now be called a dog whistle. Uh, the people listening to him knew what he meant. Oh, I hope we're making quite a precise and specific parallel. I mean, it doesn't mean to say that Boris Johnson is Hitler, but that's not the point. The point is that structurally speaking, and in terms of what decadence means in culture, and what, and in terms of what the status of pleasure is in relation to official forms of permitted pleasure, uh, I think it's an absolutely precise parallel. Look what the government, look what the Weimar Republic spent on throwing your money away, spatting money out the wall. It is exactly the same thing, I think, same attitude. And who are the descendants today of the decadence movement of 70 years ago? Well, I think in many ways they're everywhere. One of the academics I work, Alice Conde, is arguing that we see performative decadence in uh, the work of modern cultural icons like Lady Gaga, uh, the Boulay brothers, uh, their Dragula show, and even RuPaul with the transgressive gender-crossing fashion. I think these absolutely tap into something in the decadent movement, which is sort of anti-normative poses uh, designed to resist sort of, uh, you know, conformity and to challenge uh, the boundaries of truth. So can, can I just uh, say that that line goes through David Bowie, of course. Absolutely, it goes to live in Berlin and, and plays the part of Brecht's Baal and so on, who was a Berlin Rambo kind of 
descendant. But that raises the problem of the status of pleasure in the late capitalism. I mean, David Bowie can hardly be seen as a revolutionary figure. And I'm not sure, although that RuPaul has some quite profound things to say, like they're all born naked, the rest is drag. And that's, that's wonderful in a way. But I'm not entirely persuaded that in terms of negation, this is a, you know, a way forward. I want to move on to the question of religious decadence. Uh, William James spoke of a sick-souled religion and a healthy-minded religion. Do you think he had the idea of decadence in mind? I would say yes. I mean, I think the, the, the religious roots of decadence are, are often completely ignored. I mean, arguably, Charles Baudelaire's Fleur du Mal, which is sort of a founding text of decadence, was was really a, a reaction to the um, Catholic theology of Joseph de Maistre. Figures like uh, Huisman and uh, Paul Verlaine famously had strong relationships with Roman Catholicism as well and, and oscillated between decadence and uh, a rather sort of ultramontane form of Catholic piety. I mean, I think in some ways decadence is all about religion because it needs that idea of sin, that structure to push against. And so, yes, I think it's a two-way street and we also see quite a lot of uh, what could be decadent influences in religious art in the late 19th century, particularly in Catholic art. Uh, this is a slightly alien world, I think, to, to the Northern European Protestant context. But you're right, William James, I think, would find, you know, with that sort of healthy American spiritual pragmatism, would find decadence most disturbing because it's all ugliness and, and deformity, uh, disease and death. I'm not sure that is what William James meant. I think William James saw, as you know, two kinds of religion. was a healthy, as you said, healthy mind of the, the sick although I'm not sure he used sick that often, morbid. Uh, but he said absolutely clearly that the, the more profound one was morbidity and that the, the healthy, happy, clappy form of religion, whilst quite life-affirming in its way, did not reach areas of experience that the ascetic and saintliness could. In terms of decadence, what he says about how what he calls the... Uh, addiction to luxury and wealth of that time. He says that one way of opposing that from society, from a different form of psychological control, is military. It's before the First World War. Uh, and the other way is a saintly, ascetic, religious embrace of poverty. And he argues in favour of the latter. And he says, if you think about what it means to try and control the decadence, as it were, that is intrinsic to capitalism, as we were trying to say before, that David Bowie is hardly not capitalist, then the military path is horrendous. He foresaw that because it's so inhuman. It's all about violence and disregard of human life, although it does, as it were, it's like a boot camp. It has certain healthy outcomes. And of course, in those days, they were much supportive. Uh, whereas he says, religion, the ascetic impulse, is a much profounder, more important mention. As far as Catholicism is concerned, of course, he wasn't, as Graham says, he was a, he was a muscular, as a US Protestant. I don't think he speaks in favour in any way against decadence. I think it's very interesting to think about Huisman and his book Against the Grain, which is one of the sort of primary texts of decadence. It's often read uh, in a, a slightly simplistic way, but it, there's a strong um, parodic strand in Huisman and his account of decadence. And I think this is quite interesting in this context because his character is a, is a dandy and a, an aesthete who is really a, a sort of a parody of what a decadent aristocrat is like. 
based partly on Robert de Montesquieu, was also inspired Proust's character, Baron de Charles, in the novel. This is really a, a complex critique of consumerism and, uh, and aesthetic taste, which is as much a parody of it as a praise of it. It's a very interesting critique of what could be seen as the birth of a consumerist society where meanings are sort of portable and attached to um, products and consumer choices. And famously, um, Desaissant, the character in Huisman's book, spends a lot of time worrying about the colour of his wallpaper and putting jewels on a tortoise that immediately dies. You know, sort of what we might call something very familiar, the flippancy and the surface uh, superficiality of modern consumerism. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests this week are Graham Henderson and Michael Minden, and we're talking about the idea of decadence. Science, with its clear and sober account of the pursuit of knowledge, is not a field I'd normally associate with decadence, nor stagnation. But in a Naked Scientist article, Hokum on the Rise, the 70% Solution, John Gamble explored a strange and long-lasting reluctance in the medical profession to accept the latest science. William Harvey correctly described the mammalian circulatory system in 1628, and by 1900, the basic aspects of human anatomy and physiology were thoroughly understood. In 1905, Robert Koch won the Nobel Prize for showing doctors how to diagnose infectious diseases. In 1915, Albert Einstein published his landmark paper on general relativity, a concept of far greater intellectual subtlety than anything related to clinical medicine. How could it be that well into the 20th century, the most respected physicians in America and Europe continued to advocate treatments as harmful and unscientific as those administered by barbers during the Middle Ages. I wonder if we could explore decadence as a denial, not just of progress, but of scientific progress. Um, Whether you want to comment on the progress right now, today, or in an earlier period. I'm not sure what that is, but I think that Nietzsche would say, and Nietzsche is, I think, a pivotal figure, uh, that science is fine. There's nothing wrong with science. Part of the the tradition of the will to truth that began with Socrates and goes all the way through the religions uh, and emerges in science. The problem he sees is that when the truth part begins to undermine the will part. So science is fine on its own, but unless it's life-affirming, it is life-denying. So the Nietzschean view would be perfectly ambivalent in that way. Uh, Nothing wrong with science, but it's got to do its job, a kind of toughness and resolution and resist decadence, I guess. It's not pursuit of knowledge for its own sake. It's pursuit of knowledge for the betterment of society. Is that what you're saying? I don't think Nietzsche would put it that way, but I suppose it's knowledge is only valuable insofar as it is subordinate to the will to power. In other words, the reality of pragmatic power. But of course, it can be a medium for that power and it can be an apparatus for that power as the, the churches were for millennia. Uh, but this he sees is coming to an end and that the will to truth is undermining that power. And that's why you have a decadence at the end of the 19th century. That's his view. As tempting as it is to oppose the aestheticism of decadence to science, I think that's a false dichotomy. It's not science that is opposed by decadence, but scientism. Uh, you know, the creation of a new pseudo-religion based on a sort of rather reductionist philosophy, treating human beings as no more than sort of cogs in the social machine. 
So putting it another way, decadents are bound to oppose uh, an excessive belief in the power of scientific knowledge and techniques to sort of define and solve human questions. I think this is something picked up later by the phenomenologists, you know, the idea that science might just create a new set of abstract absolutes and a new sort of religion. You know, I think in opposition to that, I think a lot of the decadents were very pro-technology. Uh, I mean, Rambo and Valen were famously interested in industry and technology. And H.G. Wells is, remains one of the greatest decadent writers, in my view, whose books touch on most of the really key themes that we've been talking about today. Entropy, the arrogance of modern science, the inevitability of collapse and, and the end of times. So I... I would also say that there's a strand in decadence uh, which ends up in futurism. There's a strand which sort of actually um, thinks that modern technology is a marvellous and transformative thing. And just to add to that, absolutely, futurism uh, is wedded to to dumb technology. And so is what in German they call Neue Sachlichkeit, or New Sobriety, which is a movement in painting which flourished in the second half of the Weimar Republic, which is also deeply interested in technology and uh, the aesthetic dimensions of the, of, of the industrial world. We haven't touched on decadence in terms of a response to, I guess, a kind of naive optimism. Is it fair to say that it is a safety valve to compensate for such optimism? I'd put it stronger than that and say it's one of the most important critiques which we need now, you know, because naive optimism has led us in 150 years from a sustainable existence on a temperate planet to a situation where uh, our very future as a species is is in doubt. Um, so yes, a healthy dose of scepticism about progress, science, technology, and and the improvability and perfectibility of, of human beings is, is well overdue, I think. And that's exactly what decadence provides. I found a great quote from uh, Alice Conde, who I don't know, but Graham works with her, who says that going back to this notion of the ambivalence of decadence, socially conscious decadent performers are artists, not agents of social decline. So that I think what decadence does at its best is provides social coding for otherness. It introduces otherness into social codes and therefore, and so you have this this link that goes from effeminacy, which was always one of the things that was linked to the notion of decadence, and that uh, William James certainly regarded as a bad thing, as it were, as a weakness, from that to feminism. Because after all, effeminacy is simply the idea that certain aspects of human experience become coded, socially readable, uh, and therefore they are available to be transformed into institutional reform as in the votes for women and so on, and the respect for the equality of women, rather than the notion that effeminacy is a, is, a, is a failure of men. It sounds like you're both almost calling for a resurgent movement of decadence to bring us back on an even track. Is that fair to say? And if so, who would you be thinking of? You mentioned Lady Gaga, but I wonder if there are other picks that you'd like to share with us. Yeah, you're right. It's, in some ways, I think it's the philosophy best suited to understanding you know, the collapse of Western values and institutions we're currently experiencing. I'd agree with Michael that it, it's about the artistry of, of monitoring decline, but it's, it's a vital uh, part of self-understanding, I think, and a vital part of how you analyse where we are now in order to go somewhere new. Um, so in that sense, I think I do see it as an enormously important stepping stone to wherever we're going next. 
in terms of uh, of picks, there's an enormous world of decadent writing out there. But I think it's, you know, you can do a lot worse than go back to Proust and his ideas of memory and place or to Huisman and his idea of our relationship with luxury and consumerism, or to H.G. Wells and his view of the arrogance and potential entropy that threatens human beings. Uh, well, actual entropy that presents human beings. Also, as Michael says, there's a strong feminist strand. I mean, one of the most interesting books I've come across is Amy Levy's book, The Romance of the Shop, which, you know, in, in the 1890s invents the idea of a male gaze and what that does to women and how it places them in a difficult position or if you want a really good fun starting point you can't do better than the man in the red coat by julian barnes which has just come out recently which i think is one of the most interesting books which takes you right into the heart of decadence and it's about dr samuel posey was friends with many of the leading decadents and a quote from him is quite a good key to decadence in my view he, he famously said chauvinism is one of the forms of ignorance and uh, decadence is all about self-questioning and and the questioning of society. I fully approve of and admire that attitude, but I can't believe it entirely. To me, uh, coming from Thomas Mann, who, who's a person who I'm most familiar with, who is involved with decadence, decadence is a, is a phenomenon of social and moral exhaustion. And this exhaustion is entirely genuine and authentic and historically true. Uh, but it's not a source for any kind of change. The parallel that springs to my mind is a book called by Brett Easton Ellis called American Psycho, uh, which I don't know, I guess that might well count as a, as a decadent production. But uh, that came out in the 1980s, and it's almost unreadably sort of cruel and barbaric and hideous, uh, and meant to be, of course. But the emblem in that 1980s fiction of all that is wrong with society is somebody who is named Donald Trump. And when I read that book all those years ago, I thought, this guy's finished. This Trump guy, who is he? And look where we ended up. You know, a little less optimistic than, than Graham about how RuPaul can help us forward. But, you know, decadence is a sign of a need for change, and change will come one way or another. Well, I, I agree with Michael, because decadence is very complicated. I mean, uh, it also arguably gave birth to fascism, because Gabriele D'Annunzio, the Italian poet, was most definitely uh, a decadent and famously invented all the aesthetics of fascism. You know, the uniforms, the Roman salute, to the, uh, the fasces, uh, sticks tied together. Um, all the symbolism um, came out of his aesthetic imagination. So it's a complex movement that cuts both ways. You mentioned Proust. He was very interested in the Dreyfus affair that obsessed France at the time. Did it have an influence on the decadence movement? Yes, um, Alfred Dreyfus was a French officer who was wrongly uh, convicted of spying for the Germans uh, in the 1890s. And it became an enormous issue, dividing France, dividing families down the middle. I think it's one of the best comparisons uh, that we have to Brexit, because it was uh, an issue which divided everybody and became very rapidly, but the guilt and innocence of Dreyfus became very rapidly irrelevant became a, a what you might call a culture war, a touchstone issue, dividing those who believed in the more liberal and libertarian sort of strand of the French Revolution, tolerance, inclusivity, and uh, a pro-Jewish position, Jew Jews as full citizens and so on, from those who saw the country as being an ethno-nationalist entity and identified strongly with the army and the church. 
Um, and it really did divide the country right down the middle. And and for the most part, uh, decadents were firmly on the side of the pro-Dreyfus camp. And of course, he was in due course vindicated. The anti-Dreyfusard position also uh, attracted a few of the right-wing decadents, such as Barbary d'Orville. So it's a, it's a complex position, but uh, people who are negotiating their relationship with right-wing Catholicism are bound to be, you know, charting a course back and forth between these positions. So it's an interesting indication of decadence being an exploratory set of ideas on the cusp of modernity. Do you feel that the 21st century is a decadent moment, in, or perhaps one should ask, is it a moment that we need the decadent movement? If you ask me, I'd say yes, it's a period of cultural and moral exhaustion that needs some kind of refreshment from somewhere. And the, and the, the uh, consciousness of that is expressed in various uh, decadent uh, phenomena. I would also agree, I'd say that the decadence is the philosophy which helps us best to analyse our situation because we've all been shaken. Our ideas of progress, of the inevitability of getting uh, you know, more technologically savvy, more prosperous more secure, have all been challenged, not least by climate change and by the pandemic. And, you know, we are facing a world in which things could get very much worse, in which our civilization and our values could be under existential threat. The decadent worldview, I think, helps to analyse that situation, helps to come to terms with that situation, and perhaps helps to chart a course to somewhere new. Like all good things, this podcast must come to an end. Thanks to my guests, Michael Minden and Graham Henderson. And thank you, dear listener, for listening. We'd love to hear from you. Our very undecadent back catalogue of discussions, more than 90 to date, is there for you to dip into. I'll be back next week with more thoughts about things that matter. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.